following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. All right. Um, kind of an interesting thing today. Did it, it, it rain on you any this past couple of days? You hear that right now? Um, it's, it's kind of that time of year, you know, a little bit. It's, it's kind of what we, what we think of. And um, being the fact that we kind of live in the Verdigris River Valley type of area, when it rains and it rains a lot, it probably catches our attention, especially on the heels of what has happened in about the past 15 years around here, um, seemingly on more than one occasion. So when I talk to you about this, there will be those of you in this room who will understand what I'm getting at. I know a trio... Of men. Now, I do not know exactly what this collection of men look like. I, I only know, because it happened a while back, but I know, because there, there's, there's several men who, who are a part of this quote-unquote group, all right, um, who are people who are here, and um, I do know one of this trio, though, and one of this trio is the other preacher here, JB, and this trio of men decided it would be a good idea to wade across the Verdigris River now, it didn't look like it looks now, but it was not normal. It was up a little bit. And they decided that they're going to walk across the river while it's up some below the dam. Um, and, and JB told me as they're walking, he could, he could feel his, his feet kind of hopping and just kind of... Uh, uh, and, and, and the reason they did it was so they could get to the other side because the fishing was supposedly better over there. Now, let me ask you, is that sane? I mean, seriously, is that what you would call the picture of sanity? How about this one? Because there's those of you in this room who will understand this one as well. Imagine getting on a ski lift for the very first time and riding that ski lift all the way to the top of the mountain with the plan of coming down on a black slope with your companions who've skied multiple times. Is there anything about that that is sane? Uh, I know the person who did that too, and my father-in-law. And about a third of the way down the mountain, he made a bargain with God. You get me down the mountain alive, I will never ski again the rest of my life. And God got him down that mountain, and he has never skied again the rest of his life. Okay, is anything about that same? How about this one? How about going shopping with three women? I go shopping regularly with, with, with three women. I will live with three women. Now, if this is your first time here today, two of them are, are our daughters, okay? All right, better make sure that you're aware of that, all right? So imagine going shopping with three women so that at the end of the shopping trip, you have promised you a steak dinner with all the trimmings. Is there anything sane about that, going shopping as a man with three women? You know, it's interesting. Many, many times, crazy has an element of negotiation with it. I mean, it, it, it kind of it just falls in line sometimes. Let me tell you. So we dive into God's word today. I, I, can, I can say this with conviction, bar none. The most crazy thing that has ever happened in this world is summarized in John chapter 1, verse 14. But before we read verse 14, we need to read 
verse 1 of that chapter to make sure we have this set up well in our minds. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word or the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, now, something, if you're looking at your Bible, that if this is one of the first times you've read that, that might look a little different to you. Word is capitalized because it's talking about, it's personified because it's representing God. It's representing the Son. So the Son, who was there from the beginning, who this world was created through, that Son, the Son of God. That's who the word is. Now look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. Now that's all we're going to say about that verse today except for this fact. That verse is full of crazy. You're going to look a lot at that verse this week as you do some study on your own through Core 52. We're going to leave it at this time. But it has a lot to say about crazy. Here's the question I want us to ponder today for a little bit. What is crazy about the coming of Jesus in this world? What is crazy about? Well, the first thing as we look to this that, that jumps out of this story, and if you haven't quite caught on to what we're going to be doing today when I talk about Luke chapter 2, the beginning of Matthew, uh, we're going to do a little Christmas in March, all right? A little Christmas in March. You cannot talk about the real Jesus without talking about his introduction physically into this world, and he came not as a man, he came as a baby, so, as we, as we look at this and, and see how Jesus came into this world, one word pops and, man, it's like, it's like neon sign in my brain and the word is this, humble. Humble beginnings. Okay, like I said, we're going to leave, leave John alone for the rest of the day. Why don't you turn over to Luke chapter 1. And it might even be good if you've got one of these nice little bookmarker ribbons in your Bible to put one there. Because we're going to be coming back to Luke 1 and Luke 2 quite a bit today. Okay, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. This is what it says. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, going to hear more about him here in a little bit. Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. I'm not going to read it, but if you look at the next verse, you will see that it says something along the lines that Mary wondered greatly about this greeting she was given. She was perplexed by it. There's a reason for that. This, this translation in this saying favored one, greetings favored one, it very easily could have been written differently to say something along these lines. Woman richly blessed. Let me tell you something about Mary. She was not rich. 
She was not wealthy. She was a peasant girl from the small town of Nazareth. That was her. And when this angel shows up, first of all, that's pretty shocking, but she's like, what? Why is he here and why is he referring to me as a woman who is richly blessed? And there's a side note of of crazy going on here too that you ought to understand. And the word that's mentioned a number of times by the gospel recorder Luke is, is virgin. Virgin. The womb of this young woman who had not yet to come come to know a man physically. Her womb became the workshop of the Holy Spirit of God. Let's think about that for just a moment. This Holy Spirit, this same Spirit who breathed life into Adam after he was formed from the dust of the ground. This same spirit who was highly involved in in the making of Eve, who was built from the rib of Adam. That same Holy Spirit would form the God-man within the body of this humble Hebrew woman. And what jumps out to me beyond just the craziness of that is the humility of this woman. Now, speaking of humility, like I said, put a, put a little marker or a ribbon or something there in Luke 1 and 2 and turn back to Matthew, our first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Okay, I've got, I've got to set this up for you just a little bit. We'll be bouncing back and forth all through this story a number of times this morning. Okay, Mary gets her message from the angel and then she goes to visit a cousin by the name of Elizabeth because she is told that this cousin of hers, Elizabeth, but let me tell you, Elizabeth is old, all right? She's not even seasoned. She's just old, all right? Never had a child and she's told that she is with child. So Mary goes to be with her, is gone for around three months, She comes back home, and there's a problem. It's three months. Mary must have been a little gal because she's showing at three months. And her husband, and when I say her husband, understand, we would call him her fiancé. They have not yet come together as husband and wife. Their wedding hasn't even taken place. But in that culture, to be engaged to someone was a legally binding contract. So she comes back from seeing her cousin, and Joseph is like, uh, wait a second here. Let's see what takes place. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And that doesn't mean that he was going to send her into Timbuktu. Like, he wasn't going to, like, well, let's put her on a boat and get rid of her. No, send her away means he was going to divorce her. Because he thought she had been unfaithful to the marriage vow that has not even taken place. Now understand this, folks. It still should be this way in our culture. Unfortunately, it's not like it 
should be anymore. The marriage bed is made for marriage. Man and wife are not to come together until they are married. So Joseph sees her come back. He's going to divorce her. And guess what? An angel shows up in a dream and tells him not to. What is within her womb is of God. Now here's the thing. Just think about this for a moment and think about Joseph, this man who he's told this, he believes it, and he not only doesn't divorce her, he supports her through this, but what's he going to tell people? Dads, for a moment, let's just think about this. Your daughter becomes pregnant. She's not married. And her boyfriend, when you confront him, tells you, it's of God. What did you say there, young man, as you try not to unload both double barrels into him, you know? Let me tell you, folks, Facebook is on fire in Nazareth. And Joseph remains firmly by the side of his fiance, a humble man. Okay, let's turn back to let's turn back to Luke. As I told you, this 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 the story is full of humble. Luke chapter 2 this time beginning in verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Now understand something here for a second. She has within her womb the king of kings. They go from Nazareth, which is kind of podunk town, to more podunk. They go to Bethlehem. Understand something, folks. If you've got a collection of houses gathered around a gas station in the middle of nowhere, that is a metropolis compared to Bethlehem, okay? This is a little town. This is this tiny little speck on a dot, and the king of kings is going to be born in that place. And that's not only the humble thing. Let's continue to read on. Verse 7. If you look at this, I'm going to start with verse 6. It says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. All right, so the king of kings is born in this little bitty tiny town. On top of that, he's born and he's laid into what? He's laid into a feed trough. The king of kings laid in a feed trough. Seriously? That's just a little bit of crazy there, all right? Continue on, verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the king of kings is born to a peasant woman in the middle of nowhere and then laid into a manger. And the very first people you're going to have come worship him are the shepherds? 
There is not very many rungs lower on society's ladder of that day than the shepherds. Their job made them ceremonially unclean so they couldn't even go to the temple and worship. Their job was to prepare to grow the sacrifices for other people. It was not a coveted position in society. And this is who God chose to be the first ones to worship his son, the king of kings. Yes, folks, when we see this story, the craziness of it, oh, the beginnings, they were humble. Now, the next thing we're going to look at, oh, man, this is like the opposite of humble. As you've seen, I've already talked a little bit about the angels. They play quite a role here. The appearance of angels, angelic appearances. Now, in study this week and preparing for this, let me just tell you, there are smatterings of angelic appearances literally from the beginning of our Bible to the end. You'll You'll see them enter into the story in a lot of different places. And I did a rough count of angelic visits, and I'm not just talking about in dreams and that sort of thing, but I'm talking about encounters between people and angels in Scripture, and I rough count... It's a rough count. Don't raise your hand. You can talk to, we'll compare notes later this week if you've done your own count and came to a different number. But what I came up to was 52. 52 of them, all right? Now, in Scripture, you will find times that these angelic visits are kind of consolidated. And usually when that's taking place, there's something significant going on. One of those times was this, the birth of Christ. Now, what made this consolidation of angel visits a little bit unique is this. The main guy who was doing the visits, and the angel's name was Gabriel. Gabriel, the name means God is my strength. On a little side note, did you know that of the all-time English baby list name, Gabriel still resides as number eight, okay? A popular name, has been for a long, long time. Gabriel, God is my strength. Gabriel only visited three people throughout Scripture and gave them messages from God. The three are this. We'll start at the end. Mary, before her, Zacharias, and before him, a man named Daniel. Prophet from the Old Testament. So he visited three people. Now he visited Daniel twice. So you've got Four different times that Gabriel showed up, and guess what? Three of those four times that Gabriel showed up to talk to mankind, guess who he was talking about? Jesus, the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, when he showed up and talked to Daniel about Jesus, it was over 500 years before Jesus' birth into this world. And just to show you the significance of, of these visits, turn back to Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 19. Now, Zacharias, who married Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, Zacharias was a priest. And it was this incredibly high honor as priest to be chosen to go into the holy place. And to offer incense before God. It was a once in a lifetime type of thing. If you, got, if you got chosen, you got drawn to do this, you didn't do it again. You only got this once. Matter of fact, it was such an incredible experience. And such a powerful experience. And one that was so highly seen as a 
holy type of experience that the other priests, when you went in, would tie a rope around your ankle. You know why? Because if you happen to drop dead in there, they weren't going in to get you. They're going to drag you out. Okay, so, so he's, got, he's got the rope tied around his ankle, and he goes in, and while he is there, Gabriel, as we've already said, shows up and gives him this message. Your wife is, she will give birth to a child. You will name him John. We call him John the Baptist, and he will be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah, Jesus. Now, Zacharias, I mean, the guy's probably in shock. We can't, we, we can't, we can't come down too hard on him. But Zacharias has the nerve to look at Gabriel and say, how do I know this will really happen? And this is Gabriel's response. Verse 19 of Luke 1. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, here's your sign. You shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Yeah. Crazy. Angel showing up. Not any angel. God's primary messenger, Gabriel, who resides in the throne room of God, showed up to talk about the coming of Jesus. Now, Gabriel wasn't the only one in the Old Testament to be talking about this coming of Jesus. This birth, you want to see some more crazy? This birth was prophesied. This birth was prophesied. Now, there's something that we need to understand about prophecy just for a moment because prophecy plays a role still yet today. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians. What I mean by that is this. If you were to look up biblical definitions of prophecy or to prophesy, you would have two definitions, all right? Definition number one would look something along these lines. Anyone who speaks a message on behalf of God. If you have ever told someone the message of the gospel, and shared it with them to be used by God in that way, whether it was at school, whether it was at home, whether it was at, whether it was at the Walmart pharmacy, because when there's a long line there sometimes, all right? All right, wherever it is, you are a prophet. You're being used by God to speak a message of hope to someone else. This is a little bit of prophet. Some people call it preaching, and those words can be used synonymously in some ways. Now, the second definition of prophet has something to do that's much, much different. It's, it's, it's something along these lines. To give a specific message of God about the future. All right? That's a different type of prophecy and it's gone on for a long long time as a matter of fact as a matter of fact let me show you something put this down here just for a second and show you something else see this book it's a big book okay look at that double column are you serious all right college students how would you like to be given this one in class are you kidding me he gave us a double column 480 pages long, small print. Are you kidding me? All right? So, um, did you get this one in school? You remember that one? Thought so. All right. Um, okay. All the messianic prophecies of the Bible. The guy who wrote this died about almost 80 years ago. This didn't kill him writing this. Just let you know that. But, but look at that, guys. Okay? Get this. Give or take one or two. You know how many prophecies in the Old Testament there are of Jesus? 
300 about his coming into this world. Now, some of those prophecies look a little bit different. Some of those prophecies were literally spoken into being thousands of years before Jesus would fulfill them. And some of those prophecies had to do with the things he would do. He would heal the lame. He would give sight to the blind. He would speak good news to the poor. These things should sound familiar. They are messianic prophecy from the Old Testament that Jesus came to fulfill. Matthew is chock full of them, the Gospel of Matthew. 300 of those things. But let me tell you something. Some of these had to do with Jesus' birth. Now, I tried this week to, to number the, to list the number of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by the birth of Jesus Christ, and I lost count. I'm just going to tell you, the number was getting pretty, pretty high, right? We've already talked about a number of them. Now, here's the question. When it comes to the prophecies, not just the birth prophecies, but all the prophecies of Jesus, what are the odds of all of those Old Testament prophecies talking about the Messiah that who was to come, what are the odds that all of those would be fulfilled by one man? Let's talk about odds here just for a second. Do you know there's a math, 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 mathematical, thank you, I couldn't spit it out. Mathematical, okay. There is a mathematic term for odds. And some of you know this already. You might have even done a little of this in college. Anybody know what that's called? I'm just curious. Probability. Probability. That's something, whether or not something is probable. It's a branch of mathematics that measures the likelihood that a given event will occur. Like, like the odds of KU winning the national championship. Right now, yeah, you're right, Melvin. They're, they're, it's, it's not good. Now, last year they were a little better, but this year I don't know if they're going to get to play. All right, but okay. I'm going to just I'm going to throw some odds out there for you to just kind of get this into our mind. And the information I'm about to give you, folks, I did not come up with this on my own. I'm not some mathematical whiz. I promise you, I can't even say it. All right, but this information is readily available for any one of you who might like to find it. Here's a few for you: being struck by lightning in a year. The odds of being struck by lightning in a year: one in seven hundred. Thousand. One in seven hundred thousand. Okay, that does not mean to go out there and hold a steel antenna in the back of your yard during a storm just saying, well, the preacher said it's only one in seven hundred thousand, all right? Okay, I'm not telling you to do that. But those are the odds of the average person being struck by lightning in a year. How about this one? To be struck by lightning and be killed by lightning in a year. The odds go up. One in two million. One in two million. All right? How about this one? How about this one? The odds of becoming president of our nation. One in 10 million. Okay, now young people who are dreaming big dreams, I'm not telling you not to run. All right? We need, we really need a good president. Okay? So if you want to run, do not let that stop you in any way whatsoever. Okay, how about this one? Let's, let's, we've, we got some odds there. Here, here's one for you. Let's jump those odds up just a little bit. The odds of a meteorite landing on your house, one in 180 trillion. 
One in 180 trillion. Now, I understand that trillion kind of bounces off the page at us a little bit differently than it used to because our government spends a trillion dollars in like literally 15 seconds, okay? All right? But, but that's a big number, okay? That is a big number. Meteorite on the house. I don't think you need to go and insure the place, all right? One in 180 trillion. All right, with all of this in the back of your mind, let's, let's get focused here just for a moment. How many messianic prophecies did I say were fulfilled by Christ? 300. Around 300, right? I lost count doing the birth prophecies fulfilled by Christ. And I lost count in the 20s. So we're talking about a pretty good number of them. Here you go. Now listen very closely to me. The odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those messianic prophecies. Again, how many did I say there were? 300. The odds of one man just fulfilling eight of them looks like this. You got that? If you're taking notes right now, that is 27 zeros behind the eight. Does anybody know what that number would say? I was like, I can get to trillion, and beyond that, I'm just like, the I don't know, gazillion. I like gazillion. I don't know what it means, but that's that's gazillion. <laughs> Guys, I'm telling you, that's crazy. That's just eight of them, and he did it. He fulfilled three hundred of them. And there's people trying to tell us that he's not really who he said he was when he fulfilled 300 of those prophecies. Some of them prophesied thousands of years before he came. You know, it's kind of interesting. There are some rednecks who get accused of this, all right? And this is kind of what it looks like. They get accused of a phrase. It is this, hold my beverage, okay? You see what I'm saying? Because that usually means, watch this. Watch, this is going to be worth watching. Watch this. Understand something, folks. The fact that Jesus came here is crazy. Crazy in the most incredibly powerful sense. Let me tell you, I am far from the first person to talk in this way. I told you that crazy has something to do with negotiation. It, oftentimes, they kind of go hand in hand. And the word of God, who is God's son, who is the Messiah, Christ Jesus. It's like he looked at the Father. He looked at the Holy Spirit. The time came for him to fulfill the plan. And he says, this is what I'll do to conquer the devastating sting of death. Here's what I'll do. Hold my glory for a moment and watch this. Watch this. And Jesus coming into this world and doing what he did, brothers and sisters, is crazy. You know what Tertullian had to say about it? Tertullian was a second and third century. He was born in the second century, but near the end of it. He lived and studied most of his life in the third century. I mean, that would make, that would give him kind of a name of an early Christian leader, all right? 
So you have Tertullian. This is, this is what he said about his faith in Jesus Christ. Now understand something. When I say faith, understand I'm talking about trust. Most times when you see faith in Scripture, it is synonymous with the word trust. Trust in God. And, and Tertullian talking about the basis for his trust in God. This is what he had to say. He said, the Son of God was crucified. I'm not ashamed because it is shameful. You've got to remember, Tertullian lived under the rule of the emperors of Rome. And whereas we see the cross as something to be worn around our neck, he saw it as an agonizing, cruel, and a shameful way of dying reserved for the worst of Roman criminals. And he said, the Son of God was crucified. I'm not ashamed because it is shameful. The Son of God died. It is credible because it is absurd. He was buried and rose again. It is certain because it is impossible. And you might look at that and say, what in the word? Just because there's, it's crazy that it happened makes it believable? The thing you gotta understand about Tertullian, this is one of the statements he's most known for, but this guy, was an apologist. I know we've been throwing around that term quite a bit lately because we're talking about apologetics on Wednesday nights. Apologetics is simply this. It is a defense for the faith we have in God, the trust we have in God. And understand something, folks. The evidence that we have been given that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said he was going to come and do and he's coming back again one day. All right, trust is always involved in that. But don't ever think that there isn't large amount of evidence to back up the trust that we have in Christ. And see, that's what an apologist does. An apologist defends trust in God, defends faith in God. And, and Tertullian, had a, he had a big one to combat. You see, back then, it was a little more supernaturalistic type of society. People did believe in the gods and those sorts of things. Here was the issue. They thought that everything spiritual was good and some of them thought this, and everything physical was bad. So what they said is Jesus never really came as God in the flesh because flesh is corrupted, flesh is bad. If Jesus did not come as God in the flesh, then everything I'm talking about today and everything we believe is folly. He had to come and die as a man to fulfill prophecy of the Old Testament and free us from death. So that's a big issue and Tertullian battled that. He was brilliant, all right? So don't, don't misunderstand and say, well, he just believed it because it's absurd. That doesn't make sense. No, he had a rock solid foundation of evidence that backed up his faith. But even in the midst of all of that, he understood that this is a crazy thing though and not everybody's gonna get it. Understand something, brothers and sisters. As we look to this sermon series for the next few weeks, the real Jesus, he is real. He is historical. And our belief in him is not based on fanciful dreams of mankind. It's based on Himalayan mountains of evidence. And don't let anybody tell you different. Dads and moms, I need to talk to you for just a second. 
Okay? There's, there's, there is, it's not a certainty, but there is a possibility that that son or daughter or sons or daughters of yours will be going off to college one day. Okay? Not all of them will, and that's just fine. A lot of them will. And what you need to understand is that they go to any type of state university or state college, their faith is going to be radically attacked. And what we have to ask ourselves as parents is this, are we preparing them for that? That is a very important question that we need very much to answer in the affirmative. It's not the responsibility of a youth minister or a preacher. Now, can they help out? Absolutely. But they're our children. 